The financial crisis that began 13 months ago has entered a new, far more serious phase. Lingering hopes that the damage could be contained to a handful of financial institutions that made bad bets on mortgages have evaporated. New fault lines are emerging beyond the original problem, troubled subprime mortgages in areas like credit default swaps, the credit insurance contracts sold by AIG, and others. There is also a growing sense of wariness about the health of trading partners. The consequences for companies and chief executives who tarry, hoping for better times in which to raise capital, sell assets, or acknowledge losses, are now clear and brutal. As falling share prices and fearful lenders send troubled companies into ever deeper holes. This weekend, such a realization led John Thane to sell the century-old Merrill Lynch and Company to Bank of America. Each episode seems to bring government intervention that is more extensive and expensive than the previous one and carries greater risk of unintended consequences. Expectations for a quick end to the crisis are fading fast. I think it's going to last a lot longer than perhaps we would have anticipated, Anne Malkley, chief executive of the Arx Corps, said Wednesday. This has been the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. There is no question about it, said Mark Erler, an NYU economist who worked with fellow academic Ben Bernanke, now the Federal Reserve Chairman, to explain how financial turmoil can infect the overall economy. But at the same time, we have the policy mechanisms in place fighting it, which is something we didn't have during the Great Depression. That was a Wall Street Journal article written by John Hilsenrath on September 18th, 2008, in the midst of the blowing up of the housing crisis. But... We really need to understand that the 2008 financial crisis should have been obvious to everyone participating in it at the time, yet it was obvious to nobody, especially people that we consider to be top economists in the world. Now, there were two main factors to the financial crisis, and it's, it's the same things that we are doing today that are causing today's bubble. But really, two main factors caused the housing crisis in 2008 and caused all of the problems that led up to the bursting of the housing bubble. The first problem being interest rates and the second being government intervention. Now, unfortunately, most people don't understand what caused the housing crisis or they have a different view of what caused the housing crisis. And so the decisions that were made to fix the crisis actually made a a new crisis that is going to come. And all they did was expand a bigger bubble in financial markets by trying to fix the bursting of the housing bubble. But the first problem was interest rates. Had interest rates not been kept artificially low after the bursting of the dot-com bubble, we never would have had a housing bubble. Because when you keep interest rates artificially low, and interest rates were at 3-4% for the most part in the early part of the 2000s. But because interest rates were so low, credit flowed more easily and people could borrow money at lower rates. 
right? When the banks can borrow money at cheap rates from the Federal Reserve, they can lend money out more easily to their substituents. And the lower interest rates are, the more people are able to buy money and the ability of people to borrow more money from easy credit allows for financial prices of assets to increase. If your mortgage payment is much lower on a 30-year fixed mortgage because you have a much lower interest rate, you can afford to buy a much nicer home. And that creates more buyers in the market, which then bid up housing prices. And because housing prices continue to rise in a scenario that like that, more and more people want to buy homes to speculate on the prices going up. And they see home ownership as an investment instead of a necessity. And so that creates even more buyers in the market, which continues to propel the prices up. And that's why we had a housing crisis, because of low interest rates and cheap money. But people were willing to speculate on home price appreciation in the mid-2000s. The idea was, if you buy a home and just hold the home for a few years, you can then sell it to someone who will pay you two or three times what you paid for the home. And then you can buy an even bigger home and hold that home for two or three years and sell it to someone for even more money. And this is crazy because this all stems off of the idea that houses are appreciating assets. Most people believe that homes appreciate over time. Homes are depreciating assets, right? If I buy a home and let's say I own the home for 10 years and let's assume that the neighborhood the home is located in doesn't expand or grow. It doesn't have any new attractions built in it, right? I don't do any upgrades or renovations to the home. I just simply keep up with the routine maintenance of it, right? Well, if ten, in 10 years from now, I want to sell it, the intrinsic value of that home hasn't increased, right? It's only decreased because the longer you have a home the standing there, the more likely it is to have to have maintenance done on it in the future. Homes depreciate. They're, they're not an appreciating asset. Prices of homes only go up in times of a bubble. And you can point to all American history where home prices have gone up slightly over the decades. But in reality, the only reason those home prices have gone up in decades past is because of inflation keeping up with the housing market. But the only reason the housing market would ever outperform inflation as far as price appreciation is because we have a bubble. Because if I buy a home for $200,000 and hold it for 10 years and don't do any upgrades or renovations to that home, the intrinsic value of the home over time only it declines as the home gets older and needs more maintenance and more uh, upgrades to to keep up with all of the the things that are being done to the home, right? If I buy a home ten years from now, likely the roof might have to get replaced, or you might have to replace the carpeting, or repaint the house, or replace the hot water heater. There's all sorts of things that break in a home over time, and so homes are depreciating assets. But because we created an environment in the early 2000s where people believed that homes were appreciating assets, and people still believe that today because we're in another bubble, 
But because people believe that, people were willing to overpay for houses to speculate on the price going up. And so people didn't want to rent because the idea was if you were renting, you were throwing your money away on rent when you could be building equity in a home that you could sell to somebody else for more money than you bought it for in a couple of years. So we had people buying homes, not as a means of living, but as a means of investing and trying to speculate. And because credit was so cheap, because of low interest rates, lenders were willing to lend to subpar borrowers. And this is what became known as the subprime. And the reason lenders were willing to loan to subprime borrowers, well, really, there was a few reasons. One is because they were speculating that the home prices were going to go up. And so if you were a lender and you were lending money to someone who you believed couldn't afford to repay on the loan, in that case, if the house they were buying, if that was the collateral put up for the loan, if that collateral was increasing in price, over the next couple of years, if the person defaulted on the loan, you could actually sell the collateral as the lender to make more money than what you would have made if the person repaid on the loan. And so lenders had an incentive to loan out money to as many people as possible because they believed that if the person defaulted on the loan, they could just sell the home for more money than what they purchased it for. And they would actually make a bigger profit if the, the person borrowing the money defaulted on the loan. And that triggered all sorts of poor lending standards in the banking industry, right? You had these loans called ninja loans, which stood for no income, no job, no assets, no problem, we'll give you a loan anyway. You had no doc loans, right, where people would not document their income. Because as I said, lenders wanted to make loans. And they wanted to do so because they believed that housing prices would always appreciate. Now, another piece of this was mortgage securitization. Now, normally, in past decades, when a bank made a mortgage loan, they were the ones who were going to hold that loan for its maturity. But with the creation of derivative instruments in on Wall Street, and also with the uh, organizations from the government of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, people that borrowed money, when their loan was made to them, the bank did not hold on to that loan. The bank then sold that loan to Wall Street and wrapped it as a bond in the mortgage market. And so therefore, since the bank no longer held the loan obligation, they did not care if the lender paid the loan back because they received the money for the loan the second they sold the loan to Wall Street. And so therefore, the banks knew that once they lend money to people, they were already going to get paid on that loan. And so they didn't care if the loan was defaulted on. They had an incentive to make as many loans as possible. And so they loaned to anybody regardless of their credit rating. And so that's why you had things such as ninja loans. You also had, like I said, no doc loans, where normally, years ago, before the, the early 2000s, if you were going to apply for a loan for a mortgage with a bank, 
they wanted you to prove what your income was. They weren't going to just take your word for it that you told them you earned a certain amount of money. They wanted proof. They wanted a pay stub, right? They wanted your history of earnings. But in the mid-2000s, they didn't ask for any proof because they didn't care if the lender, or, or sorry, if the borrower paid the loan back. So you had these no documentation loans where people did not document how much money they were making. They just said they were making a certain amount of money and the bank took their word for it. Now, of course, anybody that could actually prove how much money they were earning would actually prove it because you could get a lower interest rate on your mortgage if you could prove your income. So clearly anybody that would refuse to disclose their income on a no doc loan clearly was lying about their income. But all sorts of poor lending standards were created because we had a low interest rate environment and because we had mortgage securitization. Those were the two main factors leading up to the housing crisis because, again, anybody could get a loan to buy a house regardless of whether or not they could pay the loan off. We also had adjustable rate mortgages where, we, where banks knew that if they offered a certain interest rate to a prospective lender, or again, borrower, excuse me, that that borrower would not be able to afford to make the monthly mortgage payments. And so what they did is they introduced adjustable rate mortgages where the loan would offer a teaser rate much lower than what the actual interest rate payment was going to be for the mortgage. And for the first portion of that loan, the borrower would pay on the teaser rate. But at a certain point in the loan, depending on how it was structured, the interest rate amount would be reset to a higher interest rate, thus making higher mortgage payments for the borrower. But they were making these loans, again, because they had an incentive to make the loans, because the second they made the loans, they made the money. They had an incentive to make these loans, knowing that once the teaser rates reset, that the people taking the loans out would not be able to afford to repay them. But because of all of this easy lending standards going on, people were able to borrow money to buy a house, and they were able to speculate on housing prices going up. And in the early 2000s, we really sold to the public as a nation. The idea of the American dream was no longer... Anybody could come from any lot of life and become whatever they want to be. The, house, the, the American dream became buy a house and you will get rich. The typical person in the early 2000s buying a home believed that that home was going to appreciate by 20, 30, 40, 50% a year, every year. And so in other words, if you bought a home, you could be rich. And so people were willing to speculate buying houses because they, they figured the prices would only go up and they could never come down. But again, homes are depreciating assets. They go down in value over time, at least in, in regards to intrinsic value. The price of a home may go up over time because of inflation, but it's not because the house is more valuable. It's the money that is being used to pay for the house is less valuable. Houses only appreciate in value if the neighborhoods around them are expanding. But that wasn't what was going on in the early 2000s. But real estate should be a function of rents. A piece of real estate 
if you want to measure what the actual price value of a piece of real estate is, you would look at what you could bring in from rental income from renting the property out to somebody else and put a multiple on that rental income, right? What could you rent the property out to create positive cash flow? And that would be what the home is worth. But people weren't doing that. People were completely oblivious to intrinsic value in the early 2000s. And so people were just buying real estate to speculate the prices were going up. There were some people that owned five, six, seven, eight houses. They were middle-class Americans earning a middle-class income, yet they earned several houses because they were able to borrow money from all these banks that didn't care if they repaid the loan. So the banks didn't care how highly leveraged these people were, right? The banks didn't even check the documentation of these loans, right? There were some people who would own five houses and they said that every single one of those houses was their main residence. Clearly, nobody was doing any digging into people documenting these loans. And again, it's because the banks didn't care because the second they made the loan, they made the profit because they could sell the loan to someone on Wall Street. And because interest rates were so low, Wall Street was able to accept these bonds that they were securitizing because everyone was starving for yield in the investment community. If you wanted to get interest on your investments, one of the only ways to do it was to buy securitized mortgage bonds. And so that's why the banks were able to sell these products to Wall Street and Wall Street readily accepted them. But again, nobody makes money on buying a home unless you buy a home in the midst of a bubble and you sell it at the top of a bubble because houses are depreciating assets. And the last part of this is, you know, if we were to have normal lending standards, if we would have had normal lending standards in the mid 2000s, or if we were to have them today, you would not be able to buy a home unless you had a 20% down payment on the home. And that's another thing that went away in the early 2000s, because again, people that couldn't afford the monthly mortgage payments, they also didn't have 20% to put down on a home. And so because lending standards decreased so much because the banks wanted to make these loans out, banks were allowing people to buy homes with 0% down or 5% down or 10% down, right? Even today with a VA loan, if you take out a VA loan, you can put 0% down on a home. And in many cases, you can buy a home with just putting down 5% or or 10% at the most. But before lending standards became so poor in America, right, when banks actually held the loan that they made out to people buying homes, they needed you to put 20% down in order to make that loan out to you. And that was very important to have that 20% down payment. Because when you have that 20% down payment from the borrower, the borrower now has skin in the game, right? If the housing price that they're buying depreciates after they buy it, their down payment is going to lose value. And it's very important that people have that skin in the game. Because in the early 2000s and today, when people didn't have that skin in the game, right, if you could put 0% down on a home and you believe that the price might appreciate by 50 or 60% in the next couple years on that home, well, you get a free gamble on that home. Because if you put 0% down and the house does appreciate 
by 50% in the next few years, you now make a 50% return on a 0% investment. And so you make huge returns for taking no risk. But if you bought that house with a loan and you put nothing down and the housing price decreased dramatically over time, well, it didn't matter to you. You put nothing down. You had no skin in the game. So you don't lose anything. You can just simply stop making the mortgage payments, mail the keys into the bank, and just take off. And by the way, rip all the copper piping out of the walls when you leave as well, right? But you had no risk as the buyer in that scenario because you put nothing down. In a normal market where you have normalized interest rates and high credit uh, standards, people have to put 20% down on a home in order to buy it because the bank needs that collateral. The bank needs to know the person buying the home has skin in the game. Also, the bank will actually make the person borrowing the money document their income, right? In the early 2000s, if you were going to rent an apartment, well, the, the landlord, they wanted to see your credit score. Your, they wanted to see proof of income, right? They wanted first and last month's rent as a security deposit. Or you could just buy a home, not document your income. They wouldn't care what your credit score was. And you don't have to put any money down. You could just move right in. But clearly, this is how this, the market became so distorted, which is what created a bubble. And because the government kept interest rates so low for so long, they created a huge bubble because they distorted the market. Every time interest rates are kept low, the market gets distorted and bubbles are created in different types of assets. And in 2008, the bubble was concentrated in housing because of all these poor lending standards. But under a normal circumstance, you need to have people putting 20% down for a home. They need to be able to document their income. They need to have a reasonable credit score. This way, you don't have people gambling on houses and treating them as investments. You need to have people buying houses because they want to live in the home. That's what a house is. It's a means of living. It's not an investment. Buying homes are not investments. And again, the only way to make money on buying a home is to buy it in the midst of a bubble and sell it to a greater fool who's willing to pay an even higher price than you did for the home. Real estate has to be a function of rents, and we need to have high credit standards. The second piece of what caused the housing bubble was government intervention. Now, if you ask most people that work on Wall Street, or if you ask most Keynesian economists, what they will tell you is that a lack of government intervention is what caused the housing crisis. And they will say that a lack of government intervention allowed for banks to securitize their mortgages and sell them to Wall Street. And that's why they didn't care if lenders paid the loan back. But what those economists would be forgetting is that the only reason these banks were able to make these loans in the first place is because credit was so cheap and we had artificially low interest rates caused by government intervention. It was the government that got involved that caused the housing crisis to begin with. And in fact, where the government did actually intervene in, in the market, besides keeping interest rates artificially low, was they also had uh, organizations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and also VA loans, where the government actually co-signed mortgage loans for people that wanted to buy homes. 
And this was primarily done in sub, the subprime market because, again, if, if somebody didn't have any money to put down on a house, they needed help in order to get that loan, right? So you have other lenders who are actually trying to keep their standards up somewhat were trying to at least do some due diligence on giving a proper credit rating to someone who was trying to take out a mortgage. But the second that the federal government came in and said that for many buyers, if they don't repay on the loan, we'll co-sign the loan and we'll guarantee the mortgage so that if they default, we'll just pay you. Again, it creates the incentive for lenders to just make out any loan they can, because if the borrower defaults, the federal government will come in and pay the loan off anyway, and will make you whole. And so again, this just further exacerbated all of the poor credit analysis going on in the banking industry, which allowed people to buy houses as much as they wanted, buy four, five, six houses at a time, have three, four vacation homes. And with all the buyers and nobody wanting to sell, right? Because if you sold, you were selling what was supposedly an appreciating asset. So there were all buyers, no sellers, housing prices skyrocketed well above what the actual intrinsic value of the homes were. And we had a huge housing bubble. But owning a home became an investment, and people didn't understand what intrinsic value was. They still don't understand it today. People still think today that homes are appreciating assets. They are not. They depreciate in value. A home is a depreciating asset, and homes are also extremely expensive to maintain. If you're a renter, you pay the rent, and you might pay the utilities. That's it. If you have a problem with your apartment, right, if the hot water heater breaks, or there's a plumbing issue, you call your landlord and they fix it. When you own a home, you're responsible for any maintenance that has to be done on the home. If your hot water heater breaks, you're responsible to call the plumber and fix it and pay for the hot water heater to be fixed. If the roof leaks, you got to get the roof fixed, right? You have to pay property taxes. You're paying interest on your mortgage. If you can't put at least 20% down, in many cases, you're paying for PMI insurance. There, You have to pay to maintain the home, right? There's, there's so many expenses that come into owning a home. It is not an investment to own a home. It is, it is a means of living. And unfortunately, people still look at buying a home as an investment. It is not an investment. But when we go to the housing crisis, right, with all of this going on, this should have been obvious to everybody that there was a housing bubble, but yet it was obvious to nobody. Because when people are participating in financial bubbles, right, when you're a homeowner in the midst of the 2000s, the last thing you're able to see is that it's in a bubble. And this happens all over the place. But we had, when we had the bursting of the housing crisis in 2008, all of the people that missed the crisis coming, that didn't understand what caused it, were putting, put in charge of fixing the crisis. And so we had the Federal Reserve who caused the housing crisis by keeping interest rates artificially low, what did they do? They came in and they lowered interest rates even more and brought them to 0%. And then the government bailed out all of the big banks that made all of these mistakes. Well, why did they make the mistakes? Because the government got involved in the first place. And so to fix the problem, the government got involved even more. The Federal Reserve dropped interest rates even lower. And because of that, we've been following those same policies for the last decade plus, and now we have bubbles all over the economy, right? 
if you look at the auto market, the same thing is going on in the auto market for the last several years that went on in the housing market in the early 2000s. People are borrowing money to buy cars like they have never been before. Some dealerships, you go to the dealership and they'll let you buy a car with 0% down. Why? Because they packaged the loan the same way that banks did in the mid-2000s and they sell that loan to Wall Street. They securitize the auto loans. And so there is no standard for dealerships or banks that are giving auto loans to people because the second they make the loan, they make the profit. They don't care if the borrower pays back the loan. And so now we have a huge, huge bubble in the auto market because people are able to pull the sales forward, right? When you can borrow tons of money to buy a car without saving a down payment, you don't have to wait a year or two to save the down payment. You can buy the car right now. And so sales are being pushed forward. And what's crazy about this is, you know, you have all these people that believe that all these auto companies that are making EVs are going to be so successful in the next several years. And they don't even consider the fact that all of the auto sales have been pulled forward because of these cheap lending practices. What happens if all of a sudden we start saying, hey, if you're going to buy a car, you need to put 20, 30 percent down in order to buy those cars. Well, people aren't going to be able to afford it as expensive a vehicle as they could afford now by putting 0% down, which means auto sales are going to decline dramatically, right? Everyone looks at Tesla as the, the auto company darling. Well, Tesla sells a very high-end product. What happens when people can no longer borrow money or use substantial credit to buy automobiles? Sales are going to drop extensively. And nobody who is investing in Tesla is even considering this. But it's the same thing happening in the auto market that happened in the mortgage market in the early 2000s. Let's look at student loans. Why are student loans so high in this country? Well, because the government guarantees the student loans. The government says to banks, hey, if you loan money to this 18-year-old, if you loan them $100,000, to go to school to get a liberal arts degree, if they graduate and they can't find a job that pays a high enough income for them to pay the loan back, we'll pay the loan back. And so the banks say, well, great, we'll make out all the loans we can. Why? Because the second they make the loan out, they make the profit. Because if the student doesn't pay the loan back in the future, the federal government is responsible for paying the loan back. They have the obligation to. And so there's no loan, loan standards in the student loan market, right? In a free market where the government didn't guarantee loans, if an 18-year-old walked into a bank and wanted a student loan, the bank would ensure that that student is going to pursue a degree that would allow them to get a career where they could earn enough money to pay back the student loan in the future, right? But because everybody can get a student loan to go to college and because loans are so easily accessible, well, it drives up the price of a college degree because nothing happens in a box. When universities see that the federal government is guaranteeing loans to students, they say, okay, well, we'll just raise our prices because any bank, if they're making a profit by making the loan out to begin with and they don't care if the, the borrower repays the loan, well, 
they have an incentive to loan out as much money as humanly possible, right? Why would a bank want to loan $50,000 to a student if it could loan $100,000 to that same student and still make a profit because they don't have to worry about if the loan gets repaid? And so what happens is colleges raise their prices of tuition dramatically because they know the students can still get the loans. The students still get the loans from the bank, right? And then they go study these worthless degrees for the most part. Now, yes, some students actually do good with the money. They study something that's worth studying that'll get them a high-paying career at the end of the day. But a large portion of students study degrees where they go into the job market after college and they work in a job that has nothing to do with what they studied in college, which is a waste of time and resources in our economy. But again, the reason that school is so expensive is because the government is guaranteeing the student loans. And so therefore, if you want to go to college, it's going to cost you tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to go because the prices are bidding up by all these people that are able to borrow money from banks that have no lending standards. And again, why do they have no lending standards? Because of the government. The government is distorting the market. They're keeping interest rates artificially low, so credit is extremely cheap. People can borrow money to pull buy things now instead of actually save the money and wait to buy things. And so this has created a bubble, again, in, in the student loan market, the auto loan market, right? It's created a bubble in the stock market because money is so cheap, you can borrow money and you can speculate on stocks. And that pushes asset prices up, such as stocks, right? And you have all sorts of, I mean, even in, in the, the equities markets, you can open up a brokerage account today and with zero experience of investing or trading, you can apply for approval to trade options and derivatives contracts with no experience, right? There, because, why? Because the brokerages don't care because all of this speculation is going on, right? And the business models of these brokerage houses that allow you to trade these products, they, they make a lot of money on people that lose money when they're trading. And so there, there you have all this speculation in all these markets. People are, are speculating on houses again because, again, interest rates are extremely low. You don't have to put down 20% to buy a home. In many cases, you could put down less money. And people still have the belief that no matter what, housing prices always go up because people think houses are appreciating assets. Meanwhile, they're just depreciating assets. So you have speculation all over the place. All sorts of, uh, of parts of the economy are in bubble territory, have been for a while, and the bubble is actually much bigger now than it was in the mid-2000s. I mean, housing prices now, over the past five, six years, are up you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. In some cases, housing prices are up 100 percent from the, the, the 2015, 2016 timeframe. Yet, during that same time, income is stagnant. And all that means is we have more people speculating buying homes with money that they don't have because they think that the value of the homes will go up. It, we have the 2008 crisis going on all over again now, right? Because of all of the cheap money, low interest rates, and all the speculation and all of the lack of lending standards going on in the economy. But to wrap up, this bubble, it's not concentrated in just the housing market now. In 2008, the bubble was concentrated in the housing market. And just as long as you weren't a speculator that owned four or five homes, 
or that owned a business that was very reliant on a strong uh, consumer spending habit, then you, you didn't do too bad in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis because you weren't leveraged. And also because the government was able to come in with all sorts of bailouts for the banks and the economy. And the next crisis we're going to have when all of these bubbles in the economy pop, there are going to be no bailouts from the government because the government won't have the ability to bail anybody out because of all the money printing that's already gone on. If they print any more money to bail people out, they're just going to cause runaway inflation. But the 2008 financial crisis should have been obvious to anybody participating participating in the market at the time, yet it was not. And people always look back now on hind, in hindsight and say, wow, I, I can't believe I missed that. But it's the same economists and the same government officials that caused the pop, that implemented the policies that caused the housing crisis in the early 2000s. They were the same ones that were put in charge of the recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. And all they've done is implement the same policies because they don't understand what actually caused the crisis. They have false impressions of what caused the crisis. But because they've implemented the same policies over the last 12 years, all they've done is cause a bigger bubble and in more parts of the economy. And so, you know, we need high interest rates. We need normal interest rates and normal lending standards. When you have low interest rates, all it does is cause bubbles in financial assets. And we're going to have a much bigger pop, a much bigger bursting of the bubbles this time than we did in 2008.